Uh, we are starting a new series today uh, on tefillah, on uh, davening. And uh, specifically, uh, this is not not this week or next week. There is no intention of it being a halacha shir. Uh, this is davka to focus on uh, both the hashkafa, if you will, or one of the aspects uh, uh, of davening, which we'll talk about today. And then Emir Tzashem next week will be the companioning shir. That's if you see the title, the subtitle, Appreciating and Improving Our Davening. Today will be about the appreciating, although once you appreciate Mamela, it could help you. Uh, but specifically, uh, next week, the focus will be I hope, again, with Makoros, it won't just be a self-help guide, so to speak, but it will be Makoros with an aim to be very practical on how to improve our kavana, something which we all struggle with, some more, some more than others, but there's no one who couldn't improve their kavana, uh, myself uh, not only included, but perhaps first and uh, foremost. So uh, that's the plan for the next two weeks, appreciating and improving our davening. Uh, we will, and certainly perhaps if there are comments or questions, uh, the conversation may in some ways be tailored to some of the unique challenges of being a woman and davening. But I also decided, especially uh, on the heels of last series, where we were specifically speaking about issues relating to women uniquely, uh, that Idafka wanted to not do that. There could be future opportunities to speak about the halachos of women and davening, zmanim, what you have to say, what you don't have to say. That would be a very appropriate shear or two, but that's not this series. This series, in theory, everything I'm saying can and has been uh, taught to men as well, although obviously our examples and uh, the way we relate to it will obviously speak to our specific circumstances. But I want to speak... Uh, more generically, uh, and I want to speak more, if you will, hashkafically, uh, in terms of the imp- importance of davening. Um, overall, again, you, you never know what's inside anyone's heart, uh, but my impression has been, and I've said this uh, at least once it came out even publicly uh, in the shul, for the most part, I consider our shul above average at davening. Uh, I'm not perfect, not that we couldn't get better, uh, but I've certainly been in many, many shuls, many shuls, that struggle much worse with kavana, with talking and davening, all sorts of other things. At the same time, I also feel like there's rooms that we can, way we can improve, and at least for what has become, uh, not deliberately, but in, in reality, uh, a men's program, uh, when we started a few months ago, a monthly shalashudis, so I made a decision, which I've now done three times, where when I speak a shalashudis, I don't speak about the parsha, we've been speaking about davening, and again, also, not, not halacha, hashkafa, being mechazak ourselves and davening, that's actually been the theme of our, our, our Shalashudas talks. So it hit me, you know, that uh, why should I save it just for them? Uh, this is a very important seaboard as well, and I want you, whether you're in shul or davening at home, obviously to be able to improve uh, your, davening, your, your davening. If I could ask anyone on the Zoom who's not... Um, um, the, you know, silenced. If you could just silence, I appreciate it. We do hear some background noise. I don't know who it's coming from, but whoever it is, if you just don't mind, silence it. Thank you. Um, anyway, so I think it's very, very important. Um, and last, last, last word of Hakdama. Um, this particular shear that we're going to do today, um, I don't think I've ever given it uh, in the shul, certainly not in this context, but I have given it, it's, it's actually a topic that I'm often asked to speak about when I'm a guest speaker or a scholar residence in the States. Again, it struck me when I was thinking about this yesterday, like Chaval, like... Why should only they get to hear it? Uh, I don't know if I've ever given this uh, locally. Uh, so certainly not uh, as a full share to the men. You're the first to hear this. But it is a topic that I've, uh, it's close to my heart. And I'm often, just recently, uh, in December when I was in America, in one of the shuls I was at on Friday night at the Oneg, this was the topic that I was asked to speak about. So I think it's an important topic. I think there is a certain thirst for it. And I think it's something that it speaks to all of us. And I'm hoping it will, it, it will speak to you. Um, let me say this, and this is something that I actually did say, I think, at the men's shul, should it's not long ago, um, and I've said it in other contexts, so it's not unique to our shul, I just don't think our shul is free of it. You know, Perkyavos very famously says that, you know, the world stands on three things, Torah, Avoda, 
and Gemilas Chasadim. Um, and I think that our shul and the Orthodox community writ large, um, I think, you know, Torah is amazing. You know, you can always do more. But, you know, many have made the observation, it's almost cliche by now, but I think it's true you know, that in many ways there's more uh, learning uh, now than certainly in recent history and maybe in, in all history. So, you know, certainly the, the pillar of Torah is going well, it can always get better, but it, it's, it's great. And chesed, right, you know, who does more chesed than our community? Our meaning the Jewish community, the Orthodox community, uh, and specifically, if you want to know, Satmer. Satmer is the gedolim of chesed. Uh, and the rest of us are trying to be gedolim like Satmar. But the truth is, throughout the community, across the, the broad range, there's so much chesed happening, again, lo- globally, nationally, locally in our own community. There's so much chesed uh, and good stuff going on. I think clearly, of the three legs that the world stands on, the most wobbly is tefillah. I don't mean individually. There are individuals who are really, really good at davening. But as an overall rule, you know, whether it's our teens, I've had, I can't tell you how many people have come to me for their sons, for their daughters... Hard to get up to davening, hard to concentrate on davening, hard to kavana in davening. And let's be honest, it's not just a teen problem. Many adults uh, suffer from that as well. Some have good excuses, like their mother's at home with five kids running around in noise and, and have no time. And others have good excuses, even when they have the free time to come to shul. It's just hard to daven. So rather than deny that, let alone or ignore it, today's shir is specifically intended to try to at least respond to what I think is one of the uh, causes of this. Um, obviously, I'm not a doctor. I didn't uh, go to medical school, but I guess for my more pop knowledge uh, of medicine, I know one of the phrases which always struck me because I think it's obviously not, not only important in medicine, but I, I thought it had so much relevance for life in general is differential diagnosis, right? When you have somebody who has multiple symptoms and you're trying to figure out, you know, what would be that sarhashava that, so to speak, you know, can explain the different things. So. In a, certain, in a certain sense, if I could borrow the phrase, if we were going to do a differential diagnosis, you know, on how come so many of us individually and as a community struggle and have difficulty with uh, davening. So if we had the time, and I don't want to spend it now, um, if I asked you, you know, why do you think, you know, speaking personally or your own sense of the community or your own sense of your children, you know, why do people struggle with davening? I think many, many different suggestions would probably be mentioned and there's no contradiction. They're probably all true. For some people, more of this, and some people for more of that. You know, so for some people, it's the language if they don't have a facility with Hebrew. For some people, uh, it could be the, the timing of it, the location. Uh, you know, one of my own children, you know, speaks all the time about how much more he enjoys davening when he's on a mountaintop or, you know, out in nature versus... Uh, and you even see that now with, you know, it doesn't matter if you pro-mask or anti-mask. There's certain people that don't want to come back into shul. They'd rather stay on the street. So, so when we had no masks in the shul, the reason was, well, because there are no masks. Now we have the masks, it's because you have the masks. The real answer is for many people, I'm not saying for everyone, I'm not even saying this is a criticism, it's just an observation. It's clear to me, as the objective outsider, that there are certain people that are just enjoying better davening outside. And again, I, I have a child who, who feels the same way, frankly, so I can understand that. There's many, many different explanations. The specific one, so that we don't get overwhelmed, and we're not turning this into a course, but just a class, the specific one I want to focus on today is the nusach of davening. Not the difficulty of the words, the poetry, the language. Specifically, the repetitiveness of it. The fact that every day we have to say the same thing over and over and over again, it seems almost by design to fail. It doesn't seem to be like a bug. It seems to be the function of the system itself. 
if you were looking to create a system in which people would be bored, people would feel alienated, people would feel distracted, one of the things you probably do, aside from, you know, pick archaic Hebrew words that no one understands, but you'd also say, and say those over and over again every day. That's sure to get people bored, right? Now, my assumption is that if we can all appreciate that inherent problem, in other words, noise or the fact that the guy or the girl or the woman sitting behind you is talking, those are not inherent problems to davening. They just might be a unique circumstance of where you happen to be davening when you're davening. But this is, as I say, it's not a bug. This is a fun. This is part of this. This is an inherent problem. This is the davening itself, sabotaging itself. So to me, my hanachah pshutah, my, which is the springboard of the whole shir, is if it's obvious to us, it would have been just as obvious to Chazal. And therefore, if they obligated us in a repetitive text, saying the same thing over and over again, it must be not that they weren't aware of it, not that they were denying it, not that they were going to f- protest City Hall, but rather that there are some benefits often not appreciated. Are there any other shirt sheets? I can't remember how many I made. If there's an extra one or not. Um, there are some benefits. There are some benefits to the... Um, there are benefits to the... Uh, fixed text to the sitter that outweigh the negative. When we think of the, fir- the, the, the fixed text, again, I led you in this conclusion maybe five minutes ago, but I think the average person, even without Gottlieb manipulating you, if I just ask you, what's your first reactions, Roshar test of fixed text of davening, I think most people would see the negative in that. I think it's intuitive. What I don't think we appreciate enough is that there are all sorts of benefits to the fixed text. And since we're not going to do anything about it, Instead of pretending or denying or fighting it, I think it makes more sense to get in touch with the various benefits of a fixed and repetitive text in the hope that at least one, if not multiple, of the benefits will resonate with you, the kind of thing that you can incorporate in your own life, your own davening, share with your own families, in a way that I think can actually make it not the enemy of davening, but actually a tremendous asset, okay? So that was a very long-winded introduction, but I, it's just, it'll frame everything we're doing, and I hope it'll make everything uh, more powerful. So let's take a look at the source sheet. So where does it all begin? We have to start at the beginning, and this is a well-known drasha of Chazal. It's in the Medrash, but it's easily accessible in the opening uh, page, right in the beginning of Masechet Ta'anis, in source number one, based on the Pasuk that we're all familiar with, La'ahavat Hashem Elokeichem, U'la'avdo B'cholavavchem. How do you serve God? How do you serve God with all your heart? You know, you serve God, I can tell you what to do. Shake the lulav, blow the shofar, you know, wear the tzitzis, do the this, keep the kosher, whatever it is. What does that mean in your heart? How do you serve with your heart? It's so intangible. And the Gemara asks that question. Tefillah is defined, its essence is that it's in Avodah Now, obviously, the Gemara is aware that there are all sorts of things you have to say. But the key, and this is, A, it's important to appreciate, again, if you came for no other reason than to appreciate the source, it's already Dayenu. But it also, of course, will set us up for the problem, which we're going to try to solve, which is that the, the Gemara does not say that tefillah is an avodah peh. Even though, if I had to ask you, what, what do you use to shake the lulav? My hands. What do I use? To, I mean, almost every mitzvah. I don't know if they can come up with like a footsie mitzvah. But, but usually it's our hands or our body or whatever to do a mitzvah, not to do a thing. So you would have thought, it's a mitzvah to say. It's a mitzvah, right? And by the way, I said we're not doing halacha, but just to point out something you all know anyway. Halachically, it is required, absolutely required, to verbally enunciate and articulate the words. If you just think good thoughts, that's not tefillah. You actually have to verbally articulate the words. 
So I would have expected that it is an avoda shebapeh. But that's not what the Gemara says. And clearly what the Gemara is telling us is that even though we have to say the words as a halachic prerequisite requirement, but the essence of davening is not what you say, but what you feel when you're saying. It's not a substitute for the saying. You have to articulate the words. But the feelings that you have, the real essence of davening is your thoughts, if your feelings, your emotions, etc. If you go through the motions of saying all the words and your mind is somewhere else completely, and your heart is still sleeping, it's not the essence of davening, to put it mildly. The essence of davening is what you call kavana, or the avoda she believed. Now, where did the words come from? Where did this structure come from? Right? Because if, again, if I just had this Gemara, I would have exactly thought what countless teenagers have articulated and many adults would like to articulate which is, okay, great, so let me get up when I want to get up, say what I want to say, where, when, where, 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 where I want to say it, and I'll have my own conversation with God about a Shibboleth. I would have thought that also. It's very reasonable. And yet, we find the Gemara, it's also a, in a, short, in a slightly different version, uh, not, not the whole story, but the basic facts are also in the Gemara and Brachos, but I think the best source is, not only because we're about to finish it in Tafyomi, but Gemara Megillah, source number two. Says the Gemara, Tfilim where do we know tefillin? The question is, 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 I'm taking that out of context. But basically the Gemara tells us that there was this person named Shimon Hapkuli, which sounds like he was a, a cotton merchant. That's what the, sounds like the etymology of that word is. Histir Yudchet Brachot, Lefner Ben Gamliel, Al Seder Biyavna. Yavna we know is the time of the Mishnah. But it sounds like this rabbi or this cotton merchant who was very well respected, he somehow organized and arranged the essence of davening, if, if kavan is the essence of davening, but in terms of the sitter, the essence of the sitter is the Shimon Esrei. And somehow he organized these 18 brachos, the Shimon Esrei. And the Gemara says, one second, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Shimon Apkuli, he's a, you know, incidental figure, a much later figure. I'm really but we already have a tradition, and this is also in the Gemara brachos, that it actually comes from a very early and a very authoritative source. Kuf chaf zekenim ubehem kamenavim tiknu yuchet brachot ala seder. Who is that referring to? The 120 elders? What's uh, sometimes more or more well known as Anshe Knesset Hagadola. Anshe Knesset Hagadola, who are, you know, at the, um, uh, you know, this is, includes at the time, um, obviously, if there's Navua, we're talking about in the time uh, at the end of, if not the end of the first base of Middash, then in the Golas in between, and then leading into the early, early parts uh, of the second base of Middash, right? Ezra. And the Chamya are Nevi'im, and they're the ones who built the second base of Migdash. So exactly how to you know, date the chronology when you know, Nevu'ah ended, I don't know if anyone knows, but if they do, it's not me. But exactly when, and I don't know, but we know by the time of the Mishnah, which is also second base of Migdash time, but much later in the second base of Migdash, so we don't assume the Tanaim had Nevu'ah. But the people who built the base of, second base of Migdash, the beginning of that transition stage, there was. And that great august body is the, it was, it's the single biggest Beit in history. 120 people, so that was known as Anshleik and Gedola. Not all the people were Nevi'im, some of them were Nevi'im, including obviously people like Ezra. They're the ones who originally authored the, and uh, organized the Shimon Esrei. So the Gemara says, well, if it was this great august body in even earlier period, what did you need this of Shimon HaPakuli for? So the Gemara says, Shikichum v'chazar v'sidrum, which is an astounding statement of the Gemara. They forgot it, and therefore he needed to kind of help them reconstruct it. Now, a lot of the Mepharshim you know, have a hard time accepting the Gemara at face value. They forgot davening? They forgot all the Etienne Brachos? It's not you and me. And even I, even you and I wouldn't have forgotten it. But he's, we're still talking the time of Ezra and Nehemia and in early, early, uh, you know, Tanah. How could it be? So it's different Mepharshim give different explanations of what they did or didn't forget. But clearly there was something 
that explains whatever the Gemara was talking about. But either way, for our purposes, and it foreshadows the next source, which we're about to see, which is very, very important, but for our purposes, the Gemara is telling us that yes, it sounds like these words come from, again, perhaps divinely inspired with Navua in some cases, but they were authored at a certain time in history, which we can identify as the Anshe Knesset HaGadola. Now, why did the Anshe Knesset HaGadola and Dafka at that time in history, why did they feel the need to take what is otherwise just a more um, amorphous and more you know, less defined, less rigid mitzvah of davening and make it very specific and very rigid. Why did Anshay Knesset Hagadola feel the need to do this? So here we turn our attention, and even though it's a big, big source, we won't read all of it, but I kept on looking at the Rambam, I'm like, what should I take out? And I couldn't take out any of this because there's just so much important here for us to know. This is just like foundational to understanding, you know, tefillah and... One of the, it's, it's at least a third of the important things in Judaism. So we just need to know this to be you know, really fully literate Jews. We need to know this history. And this is what the Rambam says. And it's not just history, as you'll see. It's, it's very profoundly important. And it will set the tone for most of the rest of the year, which will be about understanding and appreciating the benefits of what Chazal did. But this is still in the history and the why Chazal did what they did. So says the Rambam, source number three in the beginning, where it's underlined. First of all, this is the Rambam's opinion, not everyone agrees, but this is the Rambam's view, that there's a mitzvah, mid oraisa from the Torah, to daven every day. Based on the pasuk that we saw before, that when we started this year, that's a bona fide source, according to the Rambam, there is a mitzvah from the Torah, mid oraisa to daven. However, and here's a key, key, key pivot, says the Rambam in his continuation, after the three dots in the first line, Ein minyan hatfilos Torah. Number one is, the idea of davening three times a day, or on Shabbos four times a day with Musaf, all that stuff, the number of times you daven a day, that wasn't Midaraisa. Midaraisa, you could daven as many or as little times as you wanted. You had to daven, but it could be one or it could be a hundred. The number was not at all told us by the Torah. The Ein Mishneh Hatfila Hazos Torah, which is our topic, the text of davening. That is also not from the Torah. You could have davened in anything. That teenage instinct that you have, that, or you might have had, or you might still have, or your kids have, Again, practically speaking, they have to move, we have to move them off of it. But it's coming from a very reasonable place. It was the mitzvah daraisa of davening. Right? It was the mitzvah daraisa, they could say what they wanted. There was no requirement to say specific words. And lastly, the one which may be the hardest for some of us, especially some of our, our children, the idea of waking up for chakras, and if you don't wake up now, you're going to miss zman tefillor, zman kriyashma, all that stuff. Zmanim, says the Rambam, also not midaraisa. So the concept and the basic obligation of davening, that's Midar Raisa. But three things which make it into the reality that we're familiar with were add-ons by, again, early Chachamim, but nevertheless rabbinic. How many times a day, when, and what you say. Okay, let's continue, middle of the second line. Says the Rambam, What is the mitzvah? You have to you know, really pour out your heart to God. And we praise God, which is of course how we know, how do we begin the davening, the first three brachos, in, in, first of all, Pesuk Zimra, but also of course the beginning of Shemon Esrei, we begin with Shabbat, we praise God. The middle of davening, the guts of tefillah, Shoel Tzrachav, we have all our requests, and all those kind of things. And then, Thirdly, the last three brachas of the Shemon Esrei, that is where we thank God. And that structure is very, very critical. Very, very critical. Again, at some future date, if we give a shir on like, halacha of women davening, 
So uh, there are some poskim who do not require uh, women to say a full Shimon Esrei. That's not how we generally poskim. But there could be extreme or emergency examples where a person simply cannot physically or otherwise daven. So some say, again, it wouldn't help a man, but it could be that women in certain extreme situations could rely on that opinion. But even then, when we just say, okay, you don't have to daven the whole Shimon Esrei, just kind of say what you need to say to God. But even then, some poskim say, but it has, even if it's in your own words, the structure of praise, please, thank you, that may still need to be required. Again, that's not for now. I'm just letting you know that is a really an essential part of davening, is that tripartite structure of bakasha, excuse me, of shevach, bakasha, and hoda'a. Now, if you skip another line or so, we already had said that the amount of davenings that you do, the amount of tefillos you say each day was up to each person. And then here comes the history lesson. Middle of the fourth line by the big dalid. What happened? All this was, according to the Rambam, what was happening from the beginning of the history of the Jewish people until Kevin Shagal Yisrael B'mei Nebuchad Netzar. First base, it was destroyed. The Jewish people are sent to Babel into Galus. Nebuch, Nebuch. Nitarvu. It wasn't just they got to the Babel. Then they got all fabluntient and, you know, this one got sent. You know, again, just th- we don't have to know all of ancient history. Just think if you have any family connections to after the Holocaust. These guys, this family got sent to Brooklyn, and this sibling or this relative got sent to Melbourne, and this one got sent to Eretz Yisrael, right? Families got dispersed. So that, you know, in, in, in somewhat parallel trying circumstances, that's what happened in the Golos uh, of Bavel. They didn't just all go to Bavel. This one went to Paras, Yavan, Bashar Umos, and what happened as a result, generation after generation? Nebuch in the New World, not so good. Nodulam Bonim, Bartosa Goyim, right? All of a sudden you had diaspora children, Golos children being born in this difficult period, right? there was no Torah Masorah, there was no, you know, those first generation, you know, that, those heroic generations of people right after these upheavals, the kind of transition Yiddishkeit to the new world, it's not easy, they didn't have it, and as a result, the kids were, it was geferlach, they couldn't really speak, they were totally inarticulate, they had such poor educations, they were fablungent. There's no other word for it. I don't know how to, I mean, I could translate that, but then you'd be losing the essence of it. They were fablungent. They were all confused. They couldn't, they couldn't say a sentence in a single language. The, the grammar was terrible. They couldn't get out a sentence. Again, Hebrew. They didn't even know how to say that sentence fully in, in Persian because they'd throw in some Greek. They couldn't say all the Greek because they'd get in some Babylon. They couldn't do anything. As a result, they certainly didn't know Hebrew, says the Rambam. It was terrible. Complete abject ignorance. Says the Rambam, where it's underlined, People would start, they had good, their heart was in the right place. They'd want to daven, they'd want to ask Hashem for something, they'd want to, but they just were inarticulate. They were illiterate. They couldn't do it. Nebuch. And as a result, to the credit of the leaders of that generation, Kevin Shira Ezra Ubeis Dino. Again, that's an early. This is the early part of the Anshei Knesset Zagdola. It, it goes beyond this period, but this is the early generation. Again, Ezra is one of the Nevi'im we're talking about. Ezra, there's a book in there's a book in the Tanakh called Sefer Ezra. Kach, they saw this problem. They said, "Okay, here we're going to give you a text. You can't figure it out on your own. We're going to give you a text." And we're going to give you the structure. Uh, the three have to be shevach, and then praise. And in the middle, you're asking for things, etc., etc., etc. And here's, by the way, a side point, which is going to be re- related to something we'll come back to towards the end of this year. Even the 13 bakashot, the actual things we ask for in the middle of davening, says the Rambam, third line from the end, 
They're paradigms. Not necessarily meant to be exhaustive. Maybe you have something you need that's not in one of those brachos. You're not allowed to ask for it. No, they were, the Chazal were giving us a structure and basic categories. But if you have other things to add, we'll talk about this later, then absolutely, this is not meant to be exclusive at all. But rather, Chazal did this, so we should become familiar. You may not be able to just speak to God on your own, but at least if you have the sitter, you have to learn how to read. If you didn't know how to read, it wouldn't help you. But if you know how to read, or at least, or, or, you have a, or you have to memorize it. If you know how to read or you can memorize it, you'll know what to say, and that way everyone will at least be able to say that. And it doesn't matter if you're the least intelligent, the least uh, educated, or you're the most articulate and the most educated, it doesn't matter. Everyone will be able to at least get the basics down. That way everyone, from the lowest to the low, to the highest to the high, the most educated to the least educated, everyone will be able to do the basic, basic davening. So now we understand at least why the problem started. Why this issue arose. The sitter emerged because of a certain historical necessity. However, now, again, it's important to know this, just to be a literate Jew, we need to know this fact. But given that fact, it doesn't change that the solution, you know, sometimes the refua could become the maka. Right? This was, you know, again, this is not a discussion now for everyone to air their views of uh, public health policy in the period of corona. But certainly many people have observed throughout the last two plus years, a lot of times the solution has been counterproductive in all sorts of different ways. And we know even to take a more extreme example, God forbid if somebody is, uh, has certain diseases and they have to take very, very strong medicine, right? The chemo, right? Sometimes the medicine itself, the refuah can become the maka. Right? Not because anyone means bad, it's just a reality of life. Life is complicated. So here, we understand the refuah Chazal gave, but the refuah has become a maka for us. Because now we have this sitter that is boring for some times, or at least the repetition of it might be boring. What do we do? Clearly, we know it's Avodah Shabbat If you shake the lulav, you light the Shabbos candles, you hear Kiddush, whatever, and you're going through the motions, and it's perfunctory, that's not great. It's not great. You're not going to win, you know, camper of the year if you do that. Um, for sure not. But at least the mitzvah was the mitzvah. The Kiddush stands on its own. The Chala stands on its own. The candles stand on their own. You kept kosher. Uh, Shemitah. Okay, if you could bring a little heart to it, it would even be better. But davening is not that. Davening is the Hodesh If you do the thing, you mouth the words, but without the heart, that's not equivalent to shaking lulav, but without the heart. It's much worse. And again, one of the problems contributing is the fixed text. We certainly, certainly can't change that. We don't want to change that. That's not for us. But what did Chazal have in mind? How can we better appreciate the benefits of it so that we can focus on that and hopefully uh, really use this not as an impediment to davening, but I think things that can help us. So for that, I want to share a few ideas, time permitting. We'll see, hopefully we can get through all of them. Uh, different ideas, which I think are, again, none of them are mutually exclusive. Uh, they might all be true for you. They might all be helpful to you. And only maybe some of them will be helpful to you. That's why I want to get through as many of them as possible because some of them might speak to you more than others. But I think that there's truth to all of these. Okay, so our agenda is uh, both simple and very important for the rest of this year. What are the benefits of a fixed text given that we've now spent a considerable amount of time appreciating the problems? Well, we understand the history. We understand the problem. Now what are the benefits? Number one. Source number four. I won't read the whole source with you, but just you should be aware of what this is. Officially, Shimon Esrei ends with the words, Hamarecha, Samayis, Rabbah, Shalom. That's when davening is over. Yet we all, 
say, this extra petition called Elokai Nitzor. Where did that come from? So the Gemara tells us in source number four, okay, we're not going to read it inside, but the Gemara tells us in source number four, in the generations immediately after the institution of Tefillah, which we just read about, various Chachamim were very much sensitive to this very issue. Instead of being able to daven on their own, now they have a fixed text. So the Gemara says different Rabbanim, different Chachamim, wrote for themselves, not for the Jewish people, for themselves. They wrote, they came up with their own private personal prayer in order to personalize and make more meaningful the experience which had just become, you know, uh, objectified in a certain sense, or, you know, turned into something that everyone had to do together. It became universalized, they wanted to particularize it, they wanted to personalize it. One of the examples, there's actually a few examples in the Gemara. One of them is the one that the Gemara tells us right here in the middle of the uh, second line. Basar Tziluse, what did he say after davening? Okay, that's what we say on Rosh Yom Kippur. And then the last, the third, third to last line, verse number four, Marbre Ravina, what did he do when he finished davening? Etc., etc., what we end up doing. Now, why do I stress all this? Because the very tefillah, the very paragraph of Elokai Netzor, how was that introduced into the Jewish library? Specifically as one rabbi's personal tefillah. So how did it go from being his personal tefillah? Dafka, he was adding it to personalize his own tefillah. Has that become adopted into Ki'ilu, the 19th or 20th part of davening? So I think the answer will be illustrated to me with a story. When I was uh, finishing my first year in YU, three years out of high school, I had roommates who were going to Russia for the summer. Um, my roommate had met his now wife uh, when they were in Hass the previous summer. And that was it. Baruch Hashem. Uh, I don't know if either one will admit that they went to Hass Dafka to look for a shidduch or they were going for chesed. Um, but uh, either way, they found their shidduch. This is a Hass shidduch. But they were so young, their parents said, you're not getting married or even engaged yet. A whole other year they had to wait. They wanted to do something together for the summer. So they stumbled across this program called YUSSR, doing Kirov camps for kids. This is only a few years after the Soviet Union had fallen. 70 years of forced atheism, no one knew anything. Lots of good people going to Russia, former Soviet Union, to try to help. So he says to me, we're going, why don't you come? Okay, so P.S., that's where I met my wife. But I certainly wasn't going for that reason, and even Alana will cop to that. Whether she was going to meet me is a different question. You'll speak to her about that. It's not fair for me to bring that up when she's, I think, at a doctor's appointment or doing errands with Yaakov. I'm not sure where she is. She's listening, I think, on Zoom now. Anyway, so don't say anything, but uh, you can all speak to her about that. In the beginning, the first month, I had the youngest bunk. And every day we taught them a new part of davening. We had translators. In case you're wondering, it's called the Paravochik. So I had a translator who was with my bunk, and I would speak in English. I, I learned a little Russian, but obviously I couldn't communicate with these kids in Russian. And she, in my case, I had a nice young girl. She was my Paravochik. Anyway, so these boys, every day we were learning a different part of davening, and he, we had Russian transliterated sedurim. So when we were getting up to Shema Koleinu, I was building it up for days. You're going to get to say anything you want to Hashem in your own words. You could ask for anything. And trust me, these people needed everything. You have no hasaga what poverty is until you go there. The poorest person you know is richer than they could ever dream of being. The poverty was beyond anything I could imagine. And they had other problems too. So they had what to ask for. So we got all excited. We get to the day. We stop in the middle of Shema Koleinu. I've been building it up for a week. I said, okay, now guess what? We're all going to close our eyes so that way no one feels uncomfortable and you could speak to Hashem, ask Him for anything you want. And they're all so excited. So we get to the big moment. We all go like this. And then what do I do? <laughs> I am beyond dying of curiosity. i got to see what's going on. This is, you know, I, 
I'm not, I, I wouldn't even say this is the early part of my career. This is my pre-career. But this is the highlight of my pre-career. I've been building them up, and now I'm going to see the fruits of my labor as they have these pour out their hearts to God. And what do I see? Nothing. Abject failure. They couldn't say a word. And it taught me a very profound lesson. It ain't so easy to talk to Hashem in your own words. Try it. Good luck. Now try doing it every day. Come up with something new to say. Really? You don't think you'd fall back into certain tropes? It's not easy. We'd like to think when reading that Ramah source number three, oh, we're so much better than them. I went to day school and high school and I went to seminary. Maybe I went to Stern College or Turo or somewhere I was even learning post-high school. I go to a woman's shear. I'm so educated. That wouldn't be me. And this is, no, we're not. We're not on this. Of course, we're on a much higher level than the Ramah described. But the fact we're on a higher level doesn't mean that we don't need the sitter. My first answer to why the benefit of the sitter is, is not an inspiring one, but it may be the most truthful one. We need it a lot more than we think. And every now and then, or as a supplement, again, I hope to get to it at the end, as a supplement to the fixed text, adding things could be good. But this idea that, oh, I would ju- if I just got liberated from the shackles of the sitter, I'd be able to really have that relationship with God. Maybe there are certain spiritual superstars out there. They could be men, they could be women. I think they're few and far between. For most of us, we wouldn't last that long. And why do I mention this Gemara number four? Because that's actually what happened. It's a testament to my point. What started off as Marbara of Ina's personal tefillah, enough people were like, one second, I want to do that. I don't know, I also want to talk to God. This is a beautiful tefillah. Please guard my tongue from bad language. Wow, beautiful. It's a, a great illustration of the desperate need we have to use other people's words. Not to fake it. But we, can, we find help in other people's words in a fixed text to express what otherwise we really feel, but we wouldn't be able to express on our own. So the, again, it's a, it's a, again, next time you say Yishman Esrei, uh, which in case anyone's wondering, should be this afternoon for Mincha. Because um, women have to dive Mincha, but again, not our topic per se right now. So um, when you say Elokai sore, it should just remind you of this powerful point. Something that was started off as one particular personalized tefillah I don't know exactly what time in history it became part of the fixed text and became in every sitter ever. I don't know when that happened. Maybe some historian of Tila knows. I don't know when that happened. But at some point, a long, long time ago, we are so desperate to have help with our davening that we made yet another fixed text. And I think it's a perfect illustration of this less than inspiring reality, but it is a reality. Number one. Number two. Take a look at the last source on your page from the Kuzari. Kuzari is not directly addressing our issue, but a very similar issue, which is the need for minion. Okay, maybe this is more relevant for men than for women, but the idea that I have to be in public, what do I want to, I want to go off to a mountain and daven by myself. Kuzri is answering that question. Why is that so important? And his answer uh, to the question is because by davening in a group, that helps us daven better. He's not talking about practically have more kavana, that's a separate point. He means that you are mimela, because you're part of the group, you're part of a community. If I was giving my big, you know, come to shul, be part of a shul, be part of a community speech. He says when you're part of a kihila, you, you don't just daven for yourself. And you're certainly not going to daven for things that are going to hurt other people, just because they'd be good for you, because we're davening as a community. Ki kahal ma'ashe if all you were worrying about is yourself, you would either ignore other people's needs or maybe even worse. But 
in his opinion, by davening together, we're supposed to be sensitized to this point. That there are all sorts of things that are necessary for all of us. And therefore, the language of davening is one that is mutually or universally beneficial. If you turn over the page to source number six, this is encapsulated in a certain sense by a very short line of the Gemara Brachos. That is to say, as Rashi explains, and as we all know, it doesn't say, make me have a refuah shleima. It says, refa'einu, barech aleinu. Right? It's all in the plural. Because we don't daven just for ourselves. We daven for everyone. We think about everyone. What's the broader point that I want to convey? Not just this, but more specifically, that the sitter and the nusach hatfilah, this fixed text, is not just a way of speaking to Hashem. It's also conveying a hashkafa. It's also talking about what we ought to pray for. I think it was Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, a friend of the Bracha, who said this. I just haven't been able to track down the source, but I think I heard it from him. You know, a lot of people ask, you know, how come, in, it seems at first glance, that from the Rishonim, or Chazal, I should say, from, I mean from Chazal, we don't have a, a systematized book of philosophy. The Ramam has the, the, the Animamins, and, but you know, that's pretty late in Jewish history. How come there wasn't something like that in the time of Chazal? How come a book of dogma, of Jewish beliefs? So there are a lot of answers to that very important question. But if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Rabbi Sachs who said the, the whole question is mistaken. Chazal did write a book of Hashkafa. It's called The Sitter. If any of you are C.S. Lewis fans, I think he has a, uh, a phrase. He refers to uh, just, I think it's just doctrine, I think was his phrase. His point is, or right doctrine. In other words, to say, it's not just you can ask Hashem for everything. What ought you? What's the right thing? What's appropriate to ask for? What's important in life? I'll give you one illustration of this, which to me is incredibly, incredibly important. And that is, everyone talks about Judaism and they're focused on Talmud Torah and learning and we're the people of the book and that was originally intended as an insult, but now we've taken it and turned it into a compliment. I, I could give you all sorts of illustrations of that, try to prove it, try to show how great the Jewish people are. Or, I could just point out that the, when we have an opportunity every day to ask the king of kings, the biggest genie in the biggest bottle, for all of our wishes, what's the first thing we ask for every single day? Can there be a greater expression of the Jewish priority on learning than that? The very thing, first thing we ask for is the ability to have a high-level, high-functioning intellectual relationship with Hashem. That, what do you think, what do you think the Atachonin is for? It's good if the Atachonin also helps us to be a better accountant or a better other things. But that's not, that's not what we're really asking for. Again, if you have a test, it's good. You certainly would put, help me do well on the test in that bracha, in your kavana, for sure. But that's not why Chazal wrote the bracha. What they're telling us is it's important. Again, by the way, again, without getting too far off the topic, but you probably know, and we certainly should appreciate, this was not at all a given. Even, even now, I, I hesitate to say perhaps, but certainly in earlier periods in history, this is one of the things that made Judaism unique. The idea that we wanted everyone, from the water carrier and the wood chopper to the Kohen Gadol, to be not only literate and learned, right? For much of Jewish history, certainly in other religions, no, that was the province of the priests. Keep everyone else illiterate and ignorant, you know, and the priests will be the big intellectuals. And the No, we believe that everyone should be learning. Everyone's davening the same Atachon Eladam Das. I, I can give a whole sheer on that. Or I can just point out that we ask for Atachon before even Parnassah, before even health. There's nothing more important than that. That's a tremendous hashkafic point. 
in each one of these things, if we would think about them, are conveying not only how to daven, but what we ought to daven for. There's tremendous hashkafa if we just study the Siddur a little bit. Okay, now we'll try to do at least two more, and if we have time, I'll, I'll add, we'll, and we'll, end, we'll finish with the third. The next two I want to say really speak to me very much, and they're different ideas, but I think they're both very, very important, and they're different ideas that are both inspired by statements in Rav Soloveitchik. Rav Soloveitchik was not coming to answer our question in either of the two sources you have in 7 and 8, but I've used both of them because I think they are very, very relevant. In source number seven, of Salvechik, again, this is easy, obviously it's in English, you can read it yourself, but I, I'll set the stage and we'll do uh, most of it outside and then maybe we'll do a one or two lines inside. But the point is as follows. Of Salvechik in this particular essay, and actually this is an English version of something which is in a number of his Hebrew writings as well, he just talks about the fact that for many mitzvos, there are two separate components. There's the maisa mitzvah, the act that you have to do, and then there is the kiyom ha-mitzvah, the, what the actual desired thing that Hashem is looking for, which not always, but very, very often, says Rav Salavechik, is a kiyom shebelev. So there's a physical act, but then there's the emotional uh, experience that's supposed to be attendant to it, which is really the cha-ching, the aha moment of the mitzvah. Okay? He proves that with halacha, with lomdus, the whole big thing in Rav Salavechik's way of thinking. Okay? So just to illustrate a very simple point, um, for example, uh, one of the examples Rav Salvechik says, Rachman al-Islan Avelus. So sometimes Nebuch, a person in a situation where they have to sit on a low chair and they take off their shoes, and right? That's the ma'aseh ha-mitzvah, said Rav Salvechik. Those things you have to do or not do. But is that all Avelus is? If all I do is sit on a low chair for a week and don't put on my leather shoes, I've done the mitzvah? Says Rav Salvechik, of course not. The essence of the mitzvah, the kiyam shebelev is... The feelings, the feelings of longing for the relative, the feelings even of anger or distance from Hashem, the emotional component, which is supposed to be fostered by your physical actions. Okay? That's the thesis, okay? And that you can find in numerous writings of Salvation, including in halachic writings. In this particular piece, he turns it on his head. He says, now that I've created this chiddush, which most people don't appreciate, that there are so many mitzvahs which are not exhausted by the action, but they're supposed to be an attendant accompanying religious emotional experience. I'll flip it on the other side. If the kiyom shebelev is so important, if that's the aha moment, what's the question? Why don't I satisfy myself with just the kiyom shebelev? If that's really what Hashem wants, so Rachman al-Atzlan, if somebody's an avel, just tell him or her, feel X, Y, or Z emotion, and however you do it, you do it. Who cares about the maisa? Maybe there'll be no maisa, or you'll have your maisa, and I'll have my maisa, but isn't the ikra, the, the kiyom, didn't I just get through saying that, ask for salvation? So what is his answer to that question? His answer to the question is, if you take a look uh, towards the, the second half of the essay, of source number seven, if we would do that, he says, then, unfortunately, he says, the emotions, for all of us, are ever-changing, they're unstable, even with one individual. Moreover, as he points out, the mitzvah would continue to be modified, and even nullified. The format and identity of the mitzvah could be destroyed, and no continuity, that's the key word to me, of identical identifiable performance would be possible. First of all, each time you experienced a certain thing, you'd experience it differently because emotions are obviously much more volatile than uh, action, which I can say do this or don't do that. But not only for, would you have no continuity. Again, let's think in terms that are relevant for us. Davening. Instead of having to say the words, I just have to think. So no two davenings would be the same. Now you might think that's the advantage. But he says the lack of continuity even in it yourself is not a great thing. But I want to stress the next part, which is his second point, which is, even if you are fine with that, 
But what's one thing that would surely have been robbed? Think about this. Again, I don't know if I ever appreciated this until I read this essay. For all the times that I myself, people I know, I respect, my own children, were wishing, you know, for that personalized, you know, great tefillah on the, on the mountaintop kind of experience. If we would have adopted that as the primary model, and there obviously would have been certain benefits from that, what would we have thrown out? What would the baby with the, being thrown out with the bathwater be? There would be no communal tefillah. There'd be no tefillah but Sibor, says Rasulavichik. Not just continuity for ourselves, continuity with each other. Judaism is not Robinson Crusoe. What did I say there? Caruso. I don't know what happened to me, sorry. You become illiterate and uneducated in all your previous you know, things. You didn't make Aliyah, sorry about that. Um, right? We're not Robinson Crusoe you know, with a Chumash. I mean, if it happens, then good luck. But that's not the goal. We're a very community based religion. That's part of the ideal. At Center of Salvation, the last line of number seven, no community service of Hashem would be possible since group worship presupposes unifying constancy. I will add, first, let me just elaborate on this point and I'll add a Nakuda, which to me is so powerful. Number one is the fact that Let's, we'll start local and go outwardly, right? The fact of the matter is you could, of course, you all should have in Kilharila, obviously. But in theory, only hypothetically and in theory. You could go to any one of three or four other shuls in Mem Shalosh, more, even the Svarty shul, and more or less be familiar with what's happening. You certainly could take a walk on the wild side and go across Ayarkon. Whoa, there's this whole other place called Ramapet Chemish over there. Right? You can find all sorts of things there. And you can even go to Beit Chemish. And you can even go to Tel Aviv in downtown if you were there for Shabbos and recognize it. Or to go on a vacation and be somewhere in, uh, I don't know, an island somewhere, or Mexico, or somewhere in the, all this. You could go to Russia. It could be Sephardi. The answer is because there's a certain constancy. If everyone got to make up their own thing, right, it wouldn't matter how many Chabads there were. You wouldn't know what's going on. That's his point here, which I think is so powerful and underappreciated. I want to add something that I think is just taking what he's saying one step further. It's not just that at the moment, no matter where you go, I go to Brooklyn, I go to London, I go to Borough Park, I go to New Rochelle, Riverdale, it doesn't matter where I am, everyone is more or less saying the same thing and that creates an achdus. It's not only that, that's the first point. But think of it this way. I'll illustrate the following. The first Shabbos after we got married, which is of course after Russia, you now know. Um, or not the first Shabbos we got married, sorry. Some months after we got married, uh, we were living in the city. My parents... Uh, came for Shabbos. They wanted to visit us. They lived in the Midwest. I remember trying to convince my parents that they should stay at a hotel that was nearby. We had a teeny, teeny, teeny one bedroom uh, in a walk-up uh, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which I think at the time was a metzia of like only $1,400 a month. Um, again, now I can't even imagine how many thousands of dollars it would be. That was 26 years ago. But even then, yeah, we were a kolo and chinuch. That was our, our life at the time. Um, and a teeny apartment. My parents were like, why would we go to a hotel if it could be with you? We had a pull-out couch, you know, with that bar in the middle. Like, you know, again, they weren't old, but they, but they weren't young. Like, why would you want to do it? No, we want to be with you. If you know my parents, this is totally in keeping with them. Okay, they wanted to be with us. The, the, the Waldorf would not have been as enjoyable as to be on that pull-out couch. To be with us. Okay, it's very beautiful in a way. Anyway, so, <laughs> Bar Hashem. So, come home for show Friday night. And to me, it was like, okay, we're just going to go through the motions. And it hit me after the fact, this was the very first time my parents were at my Shabbos table. I'm the oldest, first child got married in the family. My parents are now hearing me say Kiddush as the man of the house. They were tearing. And it hit them, and I I hope it hit me as well. I was saying the same Kiddush 
that my father had said in his house, that my grandfather said in his house, that my great-grandfather said in his house, that my great-great-grandfather said in his house. There's something incredibly powerful and magical about that. It's not just unifying horizontally. I can find a Chabad anywhere and know what's going to happen. It's unifying vertically. The whole concept of the magic of Jewish history would have been impossible without certain fixed, as important as the subjective is, if that's all we had, then what would I have in common with my great-grandfather or grandfather you know, from Poland and the Gerach Hasid from here and you know, going back, I don't even know, before that I don't even know where they were from. I guess from Poland probably for a while if I had to guess, but anyway, on one side. But it's incredibly powerful. It's the same thing with, it's Kiddush is the same thing as davening. We have to appreciate that, that we're davening the same things our kids and our one day, your great-grandchildren will be saying the same thing. We don't always appreciate that. And so as kids, it's hard to appreciate that. But as we grow into adulthood, I think that's something that, to me, is very, very powerful. And that is a, a third, another benefit of the fixed text, which we would completely lose if we had let go of it. Number four, and this might be the most important, because I think in a certain way it's the most true, is something inspired by a line of Rav Soloveitchik in source number eight. And that is the last line he says again. It, you can appreciate it more if you read the whole thing, but the key is... An amazing, jaw-dropping, you know, nowadays they would say you need to tweet this out or something like that, hot take or whatever the, the, the terms of the, of the day are. This is an incredible one line. Seder Soloveitchik, number eight. Judaism is first a discipline and second a romance. What a line. So what does he mean by that? What he means by that is everybody, not just little girls playing doll, you know, and make-believe, but or even little boys, but everyone, men and women, we all, we all want a romance with Judaism. What does it mean, a romance? The passion, the excitement. You're in a great relationship, in a great marriage, you know, those dating stages, which hopefully we can hold on to in some form or another throughout our marriage. Um, that passion, that romance, right? That's when you feel alive, that's incredible. And I hope everyone, certainly most people, have had those experiences in Yiddishkeit as well. It could be in your seminary year, and this, you know, all the people have different experiences with her. We all want the romance. Senator Salvatic, you have to understand that's great. That is the goal. It is the goal. But there's a way to get there. You can't, st- you can't skip steps, there are no shortcuts. And the way to the romance is through the discipline. I'll give you as a, a muscle for, for music, but I think it's true in, in, in many, many fields, right? The beauty of art or the beauty of music is because there aren't infinite options, right? Uh, I once heard somebody gave the mushal, I can't, it was a famous Indian writer, again, he wasn't, he'd read Salvation, but he was talking about how, you know, he was looking at the, the strings on a violin, and they're pulled very taut, and from the perspective of the string, you know, it feels, it's trapped, it can't get any higher, it can't get any lower, it can't move anywhere, it could just be free. The answer is no, if it wouldn't be taut, it couldn't make any music. The music is made because it has in between the lines. Once you give, right? Again, I'm not an expert in various forms of dance, right? But classical dance, other things, right? There are certain, it's the creativity within that is what, what creates the beauty. Why do I think that's so relevant for Davening? What he's saying here is, I'm going I'm to elaborate on this point. The, what we're trying to run away from, what we're trying to avoid, what we've diagnosed as a problem, is when our telos become rote. Just repetitive without any feeling. What I would suggest that Rav Salvechik is cluing us into about davening, but it's 
this, the impact and the, the significance of this insight is far greater than just davening, is that there's a difference between rote and practiced. Rote is the enemy. Practice is the key to greatness. You cannot be great at anything over any length of time without practicing. And dafka, some of the most art and beauty type things that we have in life, their greatness always comes from being practiced. You go to a play, or a show, or a play is actually the baby, I could give you examples in, in dance or music and art too, but I think maybe theater is the best example, right? Because Mama Shamash, right? There's some text that someone else wrote, not this man or woman who's acting out the part. The actor or actress has practiced how many times? If they're good, hundreds, more? But if, they, if they're good, I'm not talking about if you go to a bad show. I'm not describing, I'm not describing you know, your second grade child's you know, uh, chumash play. Not, not, not insulting anyone's particular second grade child, but you know what I'm saying. But if you go to a really great performance, there is a suspension of disbelief. right? In that hour, hour and a half, two hours, right? you, you your heart's going up, it's racing, you're excited. right? Because so-and-so is scared, so-and-so is happy. But one second... <laughs> They're just repeating words that they practiced a hundred times. What's the answer? Again, maybe the first read of this particular actor or actress, maybe they're really gifted and they had a really good job. But even if they were that gifted, and I don't think it's typical anyway, they're not nearly as good as they're doing it on the stage. How'd they get to do that performance? How'd they get to make it so lifelike and real? Because they practiced it. Not despite the practice, because of the practice. Again, there's a fine line, and if you cross over it, you went from practice to rote, and you've lost the neshama. But anything that would be great, especially things that are dafka supposed to, you can't do it right without the practice. I think it's so true in davening. I've had this experience. I don't know if you've seen this yourself. I don't know everyone's personal history anyway, so I wouldn't want to offend anyone, but I've seen this with other people with bali tshuva. When you see someone who's recently from davening, it's painful, actually. It's not beautiful at all. It's painful. It's so hard for them. They have to put so much effort into getting the words right and the pronunciation. And wait, what's, do I bend now? Do I bow then? Am, you know, am I supposed to hit myself here? Am I supposed to hit myself there? This bracha? It's so hard. But then what happens? If they keep at it and they keep at it and they keep at it, right? as we all know, they're the ones who put the rest of us to shame. How did that happen? Because it became practiced. The godless of the Balchufa is it hasn't yet become rote. Halavai never will. But it didn't happen the first time they daven. It happened because it was practiced. So if we each day had to make up our own tefillah, forget the fact that if we said at the beginning of this year, you wouldn't even know what you were doing. You might be like those kids in Russia or the, t- or, 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 or the people in Bavel. But even if, you had, even if each day you could come up with words, there would be so much of an effort to figure out what to say there wouldn't be any mental or emotional energy left to give your heart. It's dafka because it becomes second nature. Again, I'm, I don't know if, I don't want to be uh, stereotypical or sexist. Maybe some of you are very into sports. Or maybe you're not. But I am very, I, I certainly appreciated sports. My kids appreciate sports. All the greatest athletes, just like the greatest actors and actresses and musicians, they practice those moves hundreds of times. Why? So that when the bright lights come on and it's the big game, they don't have to think about it. It's second, it could be for a doctor and a procedure. If they had to think about every single move, every single step, it would be an epic fail. Practice is the key. 
I once shared this idea with someone, and they said, yeah, that's yoga. No, I don't do yoga. I'm just you know, repeating what other people say. I'm not against it. I just don't do it. But you need to get yourself in a certain calm mindset before you start the yoga, right? So I think you have what to call a mantra. What is the mantra that you use to get yourself in the proper you know, headspace and emotional space for yoga? As far as I understand, the answer is, it doesn't matter as long as it's the same thing every time. Whatever works for you. But the idea is that it's practiced. That allows you to then have whatever the magic experience that people who love yoga then experience. And there are so many other examples of this. And I think it's true about davening as well. Yes, the repetitive nature could be the enemy. It absolutely can be. And it can also be the key. It's dafka because we're familiar that it's become practiced that as long as we don't lose the ability to be mindful about it, which again is clearly a danger. I'm not denying the danger. But if we can stay on the right side of the line then the very practiced nature of it is actually the key to its greatest success. That's the discipline of doing it over and over again, which allows the romance. I'll give, again, I'll give one last analogy. But the idea being, if you, I'll speak about it from the male, right? Stereotypically, they created this thing called quality time as a husband or a parent, you know, as a parent, as a way of making men feel better that they're most of the time not around you know, in a stereotypical family. So they create this thing called, yeah, quality time. Right? But it's basically bogus. I mean, it's better than no time. Of course it's better than no time. But you ask anybody who is a spouse, you know, with us, you know, whose spouse is never around, or children whose mother or father are never around. Yeah, but, you know, but they're there for the anniversary. But they're there for the Hanukkah presents. Right? It's not a substitute. It's not a substitute. Right? You need the, it's good. Just quantity without quality is also not good. An ideal relationship with your children or your spouse has both. That's this. You need the discipline. If you don't have all of the you know, not so amazing, meaningful experiences, you'll never have the once every who knows how many incredible experiences. You need both. It's a discipline, so that allows the romance. I think it's the same thing with our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's a relationship. And you need the consistency and the discipline of the practice to hopefully allow for those moments of genuine uh, romance. I'll just conclude by pointing out that in the final sources um, we have from the Gemara itself and then some other sources as well that point out the fact that something that probably you, you all already know and I kind of alluded to even previously in the shear, which is that it's not an either or anyway. Right? The whole, to some extent the shear has been based on a false premise. Um, and that is, well, it's either I say what I want or I uh, add my own personal uh, feelings. And the answer is, of course, now hopefully we have four or five different way, reasons to appreciate the fixed text uh, that we just mentioned throughout this year, but it's also true that Chazal Dafka wanted us to add personal petition, to add personal requests uh, in davening. In fact, the Gemara in source number nine is very critical that somebody who makes their tefillah keva, who makes a set tefillah, what do you mean that? Why is it bad to have a set tefillah? Didn't you just, isn't, isn't the sitter a set text? But the answer says the Gemara is, kosh enu Yes, there's a fixed text, but we're critical of someone who does not add something personal to it. As Rashi says, what's a fixed text that the Gemara is against? If kayom kain et mol kain machar. Today and yesterday and tomorrow, they're all the same thing. If every Shimon Esra is exactly the same, then that's actually not what Chazal had in mind. This is the start. It's the floor, not the ceiling. We start with this, but we're absolutely, not only allowed, maybe even obligated, but at the very least encouraged, least encouraged, to personalize the fixed text. 
That's absolutely, absolutely critical. And in fact, in source number 12, Reb Yonis and Ibshitz in the Yaros Dvash, he points out something which I'll, I'll end by complimenting what he says. He says, So he's suggesting that in order to achieve this, yes, you have your fixed text, and maybe that's, you know, flat line, kind of boring or whatever, but you should know as a compliment, you should also, look at the Gemara says, every day, again, some days, you know, uh, your job's on the line. Some day you had a bad day at work. Sometimes you, the last night, you know, again, nothing will, pro- nothing will get you focused on tefillah as, as if one of your children are suffering. And the old cliche, which I think is true, is that you're, you're only as happy as your least happy child, right? So, we, you know, and thank God the bigger families we have, the more people we have to worry about. The more nachas we can get to, it's, you, you, you only get what you're willing to pay for. Um, so what more kids means more pleasure and joy and more tzaras. that you can't separate the two. Um, but the point is, says Rabbi Yonis and Ibshitz, the Gemara is telling us you need to, each day is different. Sometimes it could be for your children, sometimes it could be for Parnassah, it could be for your marriage, it could be for the health of your mother, your grandmother, whoever. There's things to daven for. And what was needed today is not the things yesterday. So if you never change the davening, that's not a mila. That means that you haven't personalized it at all. I think everything he said is true, and therefore you should use opportunities to ask for certain personalized things. But I'm going to add, this is, I don't know if I'm the only one who says this, but I'm saying this because it rings true from my personal experience. If you do this, and I would add, by the way, and I've said this to Tamita many times, it doesn't have to be limited to personal tefillah during tefillah. Why can't you talk to God outside of tefillah? Your driver are looking for a parking spot. Spend five seconds and ask Hashem, please, to help you. You're about to go into an important meeting. You're about to have a difficult conversation. About the, whatever it is, there's all sorts of ways during the day that you can spend five seconds and ten seconds, fifteen seconds. Nothing to be more than that. Talk to Hashem. If you do that, or even if you just did in Shmakoleinu or whatever, it's not just that that is a compliment to the fixed text. I have absolutely convinced that the more we get used to talking to Hashem in our own words, the more meaningful the fixed text will become. Because then those words will come alive. The real issue for us, in addition to everything else, is we're not used to, we're not comfortable talking to Hashem. For obvious reasons. It's not a criticism. The more we can find ways, even outside of davening, to talk to Hashem in little spurts, the more we habituate ourselves and train ourselves in how that is normal. Again, you could be abnormal. Like, you know, those people you thought were weird when you were in spot, they are weird. I don't, <laughs> there's lines to everything. You don't want to be walking down the street talking to yourself. Oh, who are you talking to? God. Didn't you see him? He's not, he's not talking to you? Right? So you talking to Hashem. Him talking to you, we'll have to have a different conversation about. If you think he's talking to you always. But if you talking to him, totally normal in the right appropriate way. That is a way of not only complimenting your tefillah, but I think it will actually transform the, the tefillah itself. So we've spent a lot of time, I think quite in depth, appreciating at least one dimension. Again, we could give a whole year or year's worth of classes on tefillah, and maybe we should, I don't know. But this is only one dimension, but I think we've really dug deep into this one aspect of appreciating tefillah. And Emir Tashem, next week, uh, we will focus even more practically on what are some practical tips for all of us, and I'll try as much as I can to tailor it to some of the unique challenges of women. Uh, how can we dafka find ways for ourselves and our children to daven with better kavana? That is part two, Emir Tashem, next week.